Have you ever had anyone who said to you, I'm really not sure about following Jesus. I, I kind of tried it, but it's not really working that well. Things haven't worked out for me. Things haven't gone really well. Uh, there are people who don't follow Jesus and things go better for them than they go for me. And so I'm just feeling almost like giving up. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I told the Lord about my problems and he hasn't changed them. And so I'm losing my grip on the faith. You ever talk with anybody like that? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had a little self-talk like that? Don't want to talk about it this morning, I understand. Do you ever have any doubts? You'd be surprised the places where doubt shows up. And our text today is Matthew chapter 11. And Matthew chapter 11 is a story about a guy who doubted. And it's a shock to see that this guy doubted. He's a guy we know as John the Baptist. And he had really a lot of good reasons to believe but he did have at least a moment of doubt. We're going to read about that today in John, or excuse me, from Matthew chapter 11, and uh, the passages uh, from verses 1 through 19 today. Came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent his two disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. I don't know if you're like I am, but when I read that, I thought, wow, that brings up a lot of questions to me. That's an interesting passage, and it brings up a lot of questions. I listed some of them. You want to hear them? Why did John doubt who Jesus was? John had a lot of inside information, and it was the forerunner of Christ, and this bold proclaimer. Why did John doubt who Jesus was? Here's another question that came to me. Are you paying attention today? Did you stay up late last night? Pay attention. All right. What did John mean by the coming one or the expected one? What's that? Here's another question. Um, why did Jesus answer John's 
messengers the way he answered them. Why did he do that? He, he, notice he didn't give a direct answer. Yes, I am. Isn't that, isn't that rabbi-like of Jesus? He, he more or less asks a question. But, but he says, this is, what, this is the evidence. Yeah, what does a reed shaken by the wind mean? What's that mean? What did you come to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What does that mean? Is that interesting? The, there's an Old Testament passage quoted. Where is that? It, um, uh, what does kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force? What does that mean? You guys know this stuff? Yeah, you don't do it. That's why you came today. We're going to help you on this. I, I studied ahead of that. I'm, I'm ahead of you on this because I studied ahead. Yeah. These are the questions that come to my mind as I read these passage, this passage. There's a proverb there as a little like playground jingle in verse 17. What's that all about? Isn't that interesting? Here's how it goes. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned for you and you didn't lament. What did, he said, that's what this generation is like. What does that mean? And then the, another question is, Jesus ends this passage in verse 19 by wisdom is justified in her children. Does everybody get that? Seriously, George, you get that because you, you, you and I are probably, you know, you got a chance to study ahead. How many of you know you got that? Wisdom is justified in her children. You totally understand what that means? Oh, yeah, I, I called you out publicly. You know, it's like, that's right. Come on up here and explain it then. No, yeah, it, it's a little tricky, right? It's a little tricky. It's a little tricky. Wisdom is justified by her children. What's that mean? Uh, let's admit this. The word of God is so wonderful. And one of the best ways to study it is to ask questions of the word of God and then use the word of God to answer the questions. And here's what happens. You get this, when you do that, you get this aha moment most of the time. Or you get the, oh, ouch, oh, ooh, you know, the feeling of conviction that comes when you start to answer the questions that come up naturally when you're reading any part of the Bible. It's, it's, it's helpful. It's meaningful. It jumps right into your lap. It jumps right into your life. You're reading this text about something that happened 2,000 years ago, and all of a sudden it's got you by the throat, and it won't let go. And that's, I think, what's going to happen here. Since we go through this text again, and what I want to try to do is I want to give some answers to these questions, but I want to frame them in three major questions that kind of jump out. I'll tell you what they are right now, because as I read the passage immediately, it looked to me like the passage could be kind of understood like this in these three main questions. Question number one is, well, who is John the Baptist? Who is this character, John the Baptist? Um, I'm sorry, that, that was the second question. First question, who is Jesus? Because that's the question John's asking. Who is Jesus? Who are you? Are you the coming one? John's sending his representatives to ask you. So that's the first, in section, chapters one through, uh, verses one through seven, who's Jesus? Who, who is this guy? And the second question then is, who is John the Baptist? Because Jesus answers the question about himself, but then he turns to the crowd when the representatives of John the Baptist go away, and he says, in case you're wondering, let me tell you a little something about John the Baptist. So those are the, those are two of the three questions that come up in the passage. Who is Jesus? Who is John the Baptist? But then the third question we'll save for a little bit later on. So here we have him. Who is Jesus? Look at verses 1 through 6. Came to pass. When Jesus, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this section again. We'll comment on it, answer some questions. And then we'll drive to a conclusion I think will help you jump, get a jump start on your year the way you ought to start your year. It came to pass. When Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, 
he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, what had happened, if, you're, if you've been hanging around, you know that Jesus has got these teams together to send them out. So he's sending out these little teams, and they're going to go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he's a great leader. And so when he gets done and he sends the teams out, he doesn't go to Starbucks, right, and just sit there and read his Bible. He goes out himself. Wouldn't you love to have been with Jesus as he goes from city to city, their cities, the cities, the towns where these men came from. And he goes to the synagogue, perhaps, and he teaches there. He teaches out on the street, out in the open public uh, there. He goes from house to house. In the Bible, you see these number of different things. Jesus would have personal conversations with people, like at the well or public places or in homes. He would actually go out on the street and cry out on the street, would speak out like Harold out on the street. And this was not necessarily uncommon that day. Or he would go to the place where you were expected to teach the synagogue and we'd be invited to teach. But he would go from place to place. And so Jesus is doing what the disciples were told to do. And when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two disciples. Now we know that John's in prison. John the Baptist has been put in prison. And so he sends his two disciples, followers, to Jesus to ask him, are you the coming one? It's essentially this a special language there. He's saying, are you the Messiah, the one that we're waiting on, the coming one? Earlier on in Matthew, John announces Jesus as the coming one. He's very special. Jesus is not a, just a prophet. He's the son of God who came. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's God who never had a beginning, will never have an end. He will come and save the save sinners from their sin by dying on the cross, by shedding his blood. Get this, folks. Jesus isn't somebody who had a body of teaching that we kind of think is cool and we like his teaching and so we try to obey his teaching and that's what makes us Christian. A lot of people think that, right? You're Christian because there's this teacher named Jesus and he, he did like the Sermon on the Mountain. Everybody wrote it down. It made them feel really good and kind of put flutters in their tummy. And so they said, let's try to follow that man and that would make us a Christian. You understand that's not what makes you a Christian. So when Jesus teaches, you can't do what he says unless you have supernatural help. You have to be born again first, and then you have to have the continual work of the Holy Spirit. So when you get to the end of your year and you failed at so many things, there's so many things you did you shouldn't have done, so many things you should have done you didn't do, you come to the end of yourself, it drops you right in the lap of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit again, because you can't just like have some kind of system going on, some kind of religious system going on that's going to help you do all the stuff that Jesus taught, because it's impossible to do unless a miracle of new birth happens to you, unless continual series of miracles of sanctification happen to you. So you understand that when folks walk through the waters of baptism, they're, what they're saying now is they're this initiating the Christian life. They're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit working in their life to make them holy. That's called sanctification. Progressively all along as they grow. And they can't do that by themselves. And you can't either. So if you're here today and you want to start a new year and you want to get a new drop on things, don't just turn over a new leaf and go, well, I'm going to start, you know, listen to what Jesus said, read my Bible more, go to church more. I'm going to try harder. Hey, you know, I can just save you some time. Don't do that. Surrender yourself to Jesus Christ and get born again. If you don't understand that for sure, talk to somebody so we can explain to you exactly how to be born again. Eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart. We'll get our knees together and pray. And you can begin your year as a born again Christian, a saved person. That's what you need. Okay, so... Here we have, then, Jesus is going out, and, and John says to his disciples, and says, because John's in prison, John the Baptist, and he says, are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Jesus answered and says, go, are you the coming one, or shall we look for another? Are you the coming one, or the expected one? Jesus answers and says, go tell John the things you hear and see. Now, this has kind of the ring of Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah to it. 
Almost a direct quote of Isaiah, except he leaves one part off. And Isaiah says all these things, but he also says, interestingly enough, in Isaiah, one of the things he says, and he sets the prisoner free, but Jesus doesn't say that at this particular point, which is kind of interesting because he's giving a message to a guy who's in prison. It's almost like Jesus is saying, all these things are happening, but no, you're not going to be one of the prisoners that gets set free. Because what's going to happen to John the Baptist? He's going to die. Okay, so uh, the blind, he says, tell him, uh, go tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Incidentally, it's interesting, when you hear that phrase, the poor have the gospel preached to them, does this seem weird to you? Why doesn't it say the poor get a sandwich? The poor get a little money. The poor have the gospel, because we know this, much poverty is systemic poverty. It's, it's rooted in sinful patterns in our own life and sinful patterns in our culture And the real answer is more than just the wonderful thing that it is to show charity like we ought to do and give gifts and help people. But the system's got to be changed. And the people have to have an inside-out change so the poor need the gospel preached to them. They need good news. And that's what we need more than anything else. And then he says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Why did John doubt who Jesus was? Because probably John didn't have a complete and full understanding. He didn't have a full revelation yet. We'll talk about that later. And it may have been his expectations were for a different kind of deliverance than Jesus was delivering. And so he had this moment. It's like, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be a forerunner of the one who's the coming one, the Messiah. He's going to be in charge of everything. And what am I doing in prison here? What did coming one or expected one mean? This is a common designation for Messiah. And why did Jesus answer the way he did? Because he was challenging everybody there. People that read the book later through the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, he's challenging the people that listen that it's, this isn't really just about whether or not John the Baptist is doubting who I am. Blessed is he, and this is a big thing, the blessed and woe in this passage is really clear. We don't get to the woes yet. That's going to be later. But it's like either get woe or blessed, right? It's either you're in serious trouble or you're blessed by God and you want to be blessed by God. And in the passage, it's going to say there's one thing that makes the division between whether you have woe or blessing in your life. There's one clear thing, one very simple, clear thing, whether you have woe, bad, or blessing, the opposite of woe. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus is putting it to the people that are listening. He says, blessed, the person who's really blessed is the person who's not caused to stumble in me, who doesn't trip over the cornerstone and fall. Very important what he said. Why did people doubt? That's interesting. The passage quoted is in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. You should read there this afternoon. What is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force mean? We'll get to that uh, there in just a moment. Let's read from chapter uh, 11 verse 7. As he departed, Jesus began to say the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out to see in the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? What does he mean by that? The idea here is that Jesus is saying, you didn't expect, you weren't expecting somebody weak, were you? You weren't expecting somebody that's tentative, were you? You weren't expecting someone who was unsure of himself. You weren't expecting someone who was all fancy and refined, were you? You weren't looking for someone who is a spiritual weakling. This guy, John the Baptist, was not a spiritual weakling. You didn't go out to see a reed shaking in the wind, trembling in the wind. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? You're looking for somebody that was kind of uptown, upscale, kind of like dressed for the kingly course? This guy broke the dress code. This guy ate weird stuff. 
right? He's got the hair garment in a leather belt, and he's eating weird stuff. It's probably pretty healthy, but it would have been hard to swallow. And so here he was. What did you expect? It's like, well, I can't follow this guy because he's not gentle and he's not dressed like a, like, no, he's not a reed shaken in the wind and he doesn't, and he's not dressed in soft garments, but he is speaking for God. Very interesting, isn't it? Sometimes we say to God, I like you. I just don't like your messengers. He goes, it doesn't work like that. You get me, you get my messengers. You got to live with that. Isn't it interesting? Um, it, then he says, well, what did you got to see? A prophet? I'm telling you, more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare the way before you. Uh, again, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And then he has that caveat, that parenthesis, except the least of the kingdom is greater. In other words, the humblest person is the greatest person. This is a great man, according to Jesus. This great man is rotting in prison. This great man is on death row. Why, why is that? Why would a great man be on death row? Why wouldn't Jesus ride in on a white charger and deliver him and say, you're not going to mess with my forerunner like that. He lets him die. Why is that? His kingdom must be a lot different than a lot of people expected. A lot different than most kingdoms work. It certainly is. Why is it that people doubt who is Jesus, who is John the Baptist? According to Jesus, John the Baptist is a great man and a, and a true prophet. And it's more. From the days of John the Baptist, verse 12, till now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, the violence taken by force. I think this to mean that John the Baptist was a guy who assaulted heaven with his prayers and with his life. John the Baptist was a, was, was, take, took hold of things. For he spoke boldly. He prayed boldly. He lived boldly. And Jesus says, this is a great man. Because he took hold of things. He was not a reed shaken in the wind. He wasn't dressed in soft garments. He wasn't speaking in soft, muted tones. He was taking the kingdom of heaven by force, by violence. He was serious about this. He was a prophet. And, and then he goes on and says, for all the prophets and the law, prophesied till John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so he is an, a fulfillment of an Old Testament Elijah-like prophecy. And to ex- receive him or to believe in him is really going to lead you naturally to believe in the one who he is the forerunner of. And so who is John the Baptist? Now, why do we doubt? This is just comes to my mind because you've met people who doubt. I have a friend, they're very dear to me, and, 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 and in times past, he went through some difficulty. And so I remember one day um, knowing that he needed some fellowship and some encouragement and some money. And, and, I, and I said, well, let's meet. He's unemployed and, and uh, just troubled guy. And uh, so I said, well, let's meet. We met in this park, and we spent most of the day together. Most of, most of the forenoon, uh, he rode his motorcycle this park. And uh, up near Flint. And we walked and we talked and we prayed. And he was very, very discouraged. He was more than discouraged. He was, he was depressed. He was despondent. And, uh, and, we, and I tried to help him, tried to encourage him. And then he went away. And then, and then I did some other things uh, to try to encourage him and to help him. And, but they didn't work. And then things got worse for him. And then eventually, somebody he loved got hurt really, really badly. And then eventually, after that, 
his life got unspeakably more difficult. And I just won't give you the details, but unspeakably more difficult. Just he, he went through heavy, heavy, heart-wrenching tragedy. Often when that happens, he was interviewed on Christian radio and so forth, and, and as people gather around him to help him. Often when that happens, you see a person's faith is deepened, right? You just see they go through these trials, and now they become a, a star witness for God. But this guy went the opposite direction. He actually began, you could see him, begin to walk away from God. He began to say things that weren't true about God. He began to doubt the very things that he used to preach himself and tell his family. He, today, he does not call himself a Christian at all. He mocks Christians today. As a matter of fact, he has no platform or voice to speak of. He doesn't have that many people he talks to, but every chance he gets to do it, he's an evangelist against God, if you can say that. He, he, he eagerly works to erode away the faith of young people that at one time he worked to tell them about the Lord. He works against them. And, w- and one of the reasons is because when trials and pressure and pain come into his life, then we really found out what he believed. You see, and, and I don't know how you feel. You think, I'm glad I'm not like that. I would never do that. No, you have a creed. You have a doctrinal statement. You have say, things you say you believe. But now what will you believe when you're tested? What will you do when tragedy visits your life? What will we do if we have to go to prison and then die? What will we do if some of the things that my friend experienced happen to us? And then we're going to really find out what we believe then. It won't matter what we said or what was written on our paper or what, our, what we said our creed was or what we gave a nodding assent to or what our parents believe or where we showed up at church every once in a while or, or we gave an occasional tip to God on the offering plate. When that time comes and the testing comes and the prison comes or the death to our family comes or the financial reversal comes or the sickness comes, comes now we're going to find out what do we really believe then and john is going through a little bit of this this man a great a man as john the baptist who jesus himself called great had a moment of doubt where he actually sent and said are you the one who is coming my john it's your job to tell everybody else he's the one but he's asking the question are you the one you see life has a way of testing our creeds life has a way of testing our our professions, sometimes we doubt because of difficult circumstances. We just didn't expect marriage to be like this. I thought if I obeyed you, my marriage was going to be Christian, wonderful. My needs were going to be met. And I was going to be happy and euphoric and, and have somebody to be my soulmate. And we're, we're going to get along better than this. Or I thought my kids were all going to line up and do what I wanted them to do just right. I thought Christian people were always going to treat me nice and nobody was ever going to be mean to me. I thought I would never have a seat of unemployment. I didn't think I would lose my mom, my dad, my son, my daughter. Difficult circumstances have a way of testing your creeds. And doubt comes during difficult times. Do you agree with me? Yeah, we all have that. Times of doubt during difficult times or incomplete revelation. We don't have the whole story yet. John was a bit there. He didn't really have the whole story yet. And so we doubt because we haven't seen what we're going to see someday yet. So we doubt because of that. That's one of the reasons that we doubt. Or we doubt because we live in an atmosphere of aggressive unbelief. Aggressive unbelief. 
Our country is turned away from God and people are turned away from God. And more and more, they will overtly and they will ferociously express their hatred and their hatred for the things of God. A man scores a touchdown. He kneels in the end zone to pray. And it's a controversy because he said to God, thank you for the ability that you gave me to score that touchdown. He talks about Jesus and it's a controversy. Why is that? It's a precursor to the coming persecution. That's what that is. It's not persecution yet. It's just kind of mild. But now people can go on late night television and they can mock our Savior, Jesus Christ, using the name of our precious Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created this entire universe. They can go on late night TV and they can sell products by blasphemous, filthy, profane mocking of Jesus Christ. We live in an atmosphere of aggressive unbelief or subtle intellectual unbelief all around us. You and I are trying to live for Christ and believe and have faith and trust God in an atmosphere of violent, of strong unbelief. And our kids are. And, and John had a bit of that too, didn't he? Or unfulfilled expectations. This is a huge one, isn't it? I just didn't think it was going to be like this, God. This wasn't the picture I had in mind. What am I doing in prison? I mean, I'm supposed to be the forerunner of Christ. That means he's going out and I'm ahead of him and, and I'm in prison and I'm going to die. This isn't what I expected. And so these are reasons, I think, some reasons why we doubt Let's think about those questions. Who is Jesus? Who is John the Baptist? Jesus is the coming one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And John the Baptist is his forerunner, a prophet, and a great man. So we ask the question, but there's another section here. And what's interesting is this section there, notice in verse 15, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says that a lot. Are you listening? Are you listening? Jesus says, are you, are you listening? Do you get this? If you are eager to help people understand the things of the Lord, you know, you feel this way a lot. Do you, do you, do you get this? Are you listening? Do you understand what I just told you? This is the good news. This is freedom from sin, shame, guilt, hell. Jesus can be your savior. Do you get this? Are you understand, understand this? You don't look like you understand. Jesus says, let him He has ears to hear, let him hear. But what do I say to this generation? So he gets to the third question is not who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Or who do you think John the Baptist is? Who do you think you are? That's the question. The question isn't who is Jesus. That's pretty well settled. The question isn't who is John. That's settled. The question is, who are you going to be based on what you believe about John and about Jesus? And that's where he goes here. This generation What shall I like in this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their companions saying, we played the flute and you didn't dance. We mourn for you. You didn't lament. Does that make sense to you when you first read it? Or did you kind of go, what does that mean? And then he adds, for John came neither eating or drinking. They say he has a demon, the son of man. He's talking about himself. Comes eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine, but friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's he saying? He's saying, it doesn't matter what we do, you decided you're not going to be satisfied. 
It doesn't matter if we come singing or if we come mourning. Either way, you made up your mind ahead of time. You're going to reject him and you're going to reject me. You have willful unbelief. Do you understand? There are two kinds of doubt in this passage. John's doubt is a faithful doubt. John's doubt is a believing doubt. He takes his questions and his doubt and he sends something to Jesus and says, help me with this one. I'm struggling with this. I got some pain here. I got some doubts. Tell me what I know I need to hear that you are the coming one. And Jesus says, I am. And he goes, thank you very much. I'm ready to die. That's what he does. But these, the generation, they're saying, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. You can play, you can dance and I'm not going to rejoice. You can mourn and I'm not going to weep. I have my own life. I got my things I'm going to do. I got my way I'm going to go. I have my religion and I'm not going to yield to you no matter what you do. That's a willful unbelief. That's a scary unbelief. Now, you understand, in the next passage where we're going, he's going to start talking about woe to cities, and it's shocking. When I teach you this, next week it's just amazing. We got to go to the Holy Land, and we got to see the places where the cities were. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. In other words, he's going to talk about woes coming up. But before he does that, he says, if you choose not to believe, if you are in willful unbelief, woe to you. It doesn't get any worse than when a person chooses to willfully not believe in who Jesus is. But before he does that, he gives this little thing about, but if you are an honest doubter, if you are a common doubter like we are, that we have questions that nag our soul. That's not a bad thing. That's okay. The thing of it is this. This is the thing, though. What are you going to do when you doubt? Are you going to be willful in your unbelief? Or are you going to humbly take your questions that you have to Jesus and say, help me here. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I need some help. Help me with my troubles here. Help me with my questions. Help me with my, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my, do you feel that way? I think if you're honest, I can't imagine any real Christian who wouldn't say that I get because I believe, but I have days I doubt. Because if you ever sinned, you doubted, didn't you? If you ever sinned, you doubted. A sin is rooted in unbelief. And when we can, can believe, then all kinds of wonderful things begin to happen in our life. This is what all this means to us. What you believe about Jesus is the heart of everything. And full devotion to Christ requires an understanding of who he is, including his forerunner and who he is. And the most critical question in the world is, is to you is what you believe about who Jesus is. Now, not too long ago, there was a fellow named Christopher Hitchens who died. He was an open uh, atheist, and he wrote books against God. He has a brother named Peter who was also an atheist. You're, you're familiar with this, right? And, but Peter got saved, and he's a devoted believer. And Christopher died, and he went to hell. He's a believer now. Now, he understands that what he said was wrong. And, and what's the difference? With, what, what happened with Christopher? I'm not being mean about this. It's, it's not a happy thing. What is the deal with Christopher, though? You see, he came to his conclusions too early. That's all. He just came to his conclusions too early. He took all the evidence that he had. He lifted himself up in pride. He had the answers for everything. He wrote books about it. He said, there is no God. And people that are deluded by God are fools. But now he knows better. He should have waited a little bit before he decided what was up, right? You understand, this is exactly where we're headed with this passage because Jesus says at the very end of this, this little phrase, he says, wisdom is justified in her children. The idea that children here is like the fruit or the result. Wisdom, John's teaching, and Jesus' teaching is going to be vindicated by the product of the teaching. That's the idea. 
Wisdom is vindicated by its teaching. The teaching is going to show up in the end that it was true. What Jesus said about who he was and what John said about who Jesus was and what Jesus did, we're all going to know someday is true. You guys, this is what you have to understand when you're in the darkness of doubt. You keep moving forward because when we get to the end, there's not going to be any more doubt for anybody. Doubt is for now when we worship one we do not see, whom having not seen, we love, we, we, we see through the eyes of faith. And so we have times of doubt because we have these difficulties that come in uh, to our lives. Difficult circumstances, incomplete revelation. Why do the wicked prosper, right? Atmosphere of unbelief, unfulfilled expectations that come. I told you I was going to tell you a little bit about Jennifer, Jennifer, who was baptized this morning. I asked her how she came to know the Lord. She was not raised in a Christian family, not at all. Her mom was not a believer. And um, so, but they, and they had a pinto. And you may wonder about how God would use a pinto, a, a Ford pinto to bring someone to the Lord. Here's what happened. Jennifer, you know, pintos didn't run very well. And uh, you can deny it, but we all know it's true. They weren't good cars. Um, and, and they were ugly. Um, they were just a bad car. How many of you have owned a Pinto? Raise your hand if you own one. Talk to these people. They will tell you that. Right? It wasn't Ford's finest hour, okay? It just wasn't. Now, everybody knows that. It's like Mustangs in the 80s. You know, if you had one, don't tell anybody about it. It's not something to be proud of. But <laughs> you want to talk about that, Jeff? <laughs> Jennifer's mom had a Pinto. Jennifer's mom had a Pinto, and it, and it wouldn't run. Jennifer just a little girl, right? Her mom wasn't a believer, wasn't a church-going woman, not at all, not at all. She'd be like quicker to swear than pray. I have Jennifer's permission to tell you this. So she would swear at the car when it wouldn't run, but Jennifer, for some reason, well, actually, Jennifer says it's probably because she had a holy roller grandmother. That's how Jennifer put it. Jennifer, where are you? I'm talking about you, but I don't see you. Did you leave? Jennifer, raise your hand up real high. Come on, don't be shy. I still don't see you. She, Jennifer, hello. Where are you? Raise your hand up real high. Where is she? I don't see her. Oh, she's out back. Okay. Okay. She's coming in. Okay. Sir, you can stay there. Right? Jennifer likes to listen from the outside because it intimidates her to come in. And now she's feeling all comfortable now that I pointed her out publicly. <laughs> Sorry about that. So her mom's cussing because the car won't run. She has a holy roller grandma that's praying for her. So what does she do when the car won't run? She lays hands on a dashboard and prays for it. You don't have to believe this if you don't want to. But she said when she prayed, the car would start. I don't care if you believe it or not. She's just, I'm just telling you, that's what she told me. So after a while, her mom starts cussing, stops cussing at the car when it won't run. And she's going, it doesn't, when I cuss, the car doesn't run when I cuss at it. But it runs when she prays. So her mom quits cussing at the car. L- listen, if you're, if you're involved in influencing people for the Lord, you will hear weirder stories than this one. Because that's what it is for all of us. It's just crazy how the Lord gets a hold of us. Here's Jennifer, a little girl, who's saying in her simple childlike faith, God, please let our car run. And over the years, the Lord has followed Jennifer and drawn her to our fellowship here, drawn her across the threshold of obedience and baptism today in order to go on with the Lord. And we're her church family now. What do you do when your pinto doesn't run? What do you do when your life falls apart? Do you swear or do you pray? What do you do when you're full of doubt? Do you curse God? 
Like my friend who's, I trust that he'll be restored one day. I trust that he'll be restored one day. But right now he's taking advice of Job's wife, curse God and die. Or, or do you pray? I had a gal this week stop by the church office. She might be here today. I don't think so. Stop by the church office and because she had demons in her house. So, so she stopped by and said, I need a priest to pray for my house so the demons will go away, so the ghost will leave it. And I said, Pastor Discerns will help you. <laughs> now, he, he wasn't here, so all the other pastors were hiding under a rock somewhere. No, they, they were working diligently. Anyway, I, I happened to be there, and, and, uh, and, and so I said, well, come on back. Let's talk about that. And Sandy knows no matter how crazy the question is, the answer is, sure, Pastor, we'd love to talk with you. And uh, that's the way we do, because we know that people don't always have the right questions, but we always have the right answer for them in the Lord, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So this precious girl comes back. She's like, I, and she begins to go and tell the details about the demons in her house. And her little, sweet little 10-year-old boy is with her, kind of like wide-eyed and nodding like, yeah, it's not good. And I, he has a little crucifix around his neck. And he, he crosses himself every once in a while. And he says about something about Jesus and about the blood of Jesus. And he kisses his little crucifix. And, you know, he's doing all the religious things he knows to do. And she's got a really messed up theology about demons she doesn't understand, you know. She thinks they're people that have come back, and it's not the case. The Bible doesn't talk about that. So what is this? You know, we won't go into that. But you know what interested me was this precious young lady, when she had this manifestation in her house that frightened her and her little boy, what did she do? She came here, folks. She came here. She came looking for a priest. (laughs) I said, we got 600 of them. Amen? And I had a wonderful talk. And I went out to the secretary that said, <laughs> I love working here. I hate shuffling paper, but I love to talk with people like that. Here was a person who, when was visited by demons, she came to church to ask for help. So when your pinto doesn't run, and when the demons of doubt visit you, the big question is, where are you going to go? Are you going to keep going to Jesus? Are you going to trust him and obey him? Let's make 2012 a year of faith, a year of trust, a year of obedience. Let's make 2012 not the year that we were a reed shaken by the wind, but people that made Christ known boldly, even when we were suffering or even when things were difficult or even when our hearts were broken. Let's believe God to do great things. Let's follow him, even if it means we have to suffer, or even if it means that we have to die. And then when we're tempted to doubt, let's pray this prayer. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You may wonder, well, give me the message in a short version, in a tweet, in a, in a big idea. I would say it like this. Take your doubts to God in faith. Let your doubts push you to God and not away. And if you will continue in obedience, in the end, you will be glad that you did. I feel like singing number 451. I'm going to lead you in this today.